Hello and welcome to episode two of Don't Mention the War. Um, I'm Paul Gordon. Uh, afraid there is no Big Dave joining us today. Big Dave is at home drinking his Christmas beers and eating his Christmas mince pies. Uh, so uh, instead, I'm very happy to be joined by my very good friend um, and fellow history enthusiast, Mr. Tim Payne. Welcome, my dear boy. Thank you very much, Paul Gordon. Um, it's an absolute pleasure to be on the podcast today. Uh, I'm looking forward to a good conversation about the war. As you say, I'm a fellow enthusiast. Uh, just a bit sad that I'm um, having to replace uh, Big Dave today. Um, it would have been nicer to be on, on the show with him, but I do understand the mince pies have called. Indeed. Yeah, big. you've got big shoes to, to step into today. You know that. Um, as it's winter time, I've also got cold, so apologies if anyone can hear that in my voice, but um, we will persevere. So, Pedro, I've known you for a long time, and we always like chatting about um, anything to do with the Second World War. Yeah, absolutely. Just really an interest um, from a young age, I think, both of us, in, in anything to do with the Second World War. Um, uh, my particular interest around um, the war in North Africa and hopefully in future podcasts we'll get a chance to talk about that oh yeah we'll, we'll have plenty of opportunity to to, to get that into that stuff in in detail um let me just give a the, the usual quick disclaimer so uh, we're not professional historians so whilst we try and um, make sure that all the facts uh, and figures that we discuss today are as accurate as possible um if if any inaccuracy inaccuracies do creep in um you can blame our, our amateur status um I also want to be clear as well that, you know, we, we don't want to glorify or kind of romanticize um, this subject matter because at the end of the day, Second World War was a was a, a bloody awful um, thing that happened to the world, to hundreds of millions of people. Um, so we need to keep that in mind. Um, but from historians perspective, you know, it's it's hugely rich um, subject matter. You know, there's there's so many different layers to it. There's always different angles that you're exploring, new stories, um, and and that was that was kind of the uh, the inspiration, wasn't it? But behind this episode, you know, we we want to kind of focus on um, some uh, you know hopefully ang- interesting angles that people haven't um, uh, um, encountered before. No, absolutely. I just think it's um, there's so many. The main stories in the war are well trodden. And, and we know from television, Hollywood films, etc., around them. What uh, what really is interesting to me, and I know it is to you too, is some of these small snippets and facts and, and different bits of information about things that maybe not that many or not as many people know about. Yeah, brilliant, top man. Okay, so we're gonna yeah we're gonna share with you all um, uh, a handful of uh, hopefully interesting and, and lesser known facts um, and stories about the war. So um, let's get into it, shall we? Um, over to you, sir, for the for the first one. Yeah. So uh, again, some of these will be just short uh, facts, but I think they're really interesting, and I think it's apt that we would start with the first Allied shot, or allegedly the first Allied shot the whole Second mm. World War. Um, I did certainly, um, when I came across this, I hadn't heard this before, and I think it's really interesting for a couple of points. Um, the The first shot was actually fired um, at 1.30 on, the, on September the 4th, 1939, so the day the, the Allies or, or Great Britain um, went to war with Germany. 
Uh-huh. And it was fired in, over in Australia, which would be the last place um, you would imagine uh, the, the first shot from Allies in the Second World War really? would be. Yeah, it was, it was fired from a gun at somewhere called uh, Fort Nepean. This, this place is basically it's a gun which uh, guards the entrance to the, the wider bay and harbour that Melbourne is on in Australia, down in Victoria. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the gun, the gun was actually fired. So the, the war was announced um, and there was a, a ship just sailing past the fort and the, the uh, people manning the battery, the gun battery, asked, uh, asked for the ship to identify itself because it they couldn't identify where it was from. And when they didn't hear anything back, they actually fired a salvo across the ship's bow. Um, it turned out, it, it, a bit of a circus, this event, it turned out that the um, ship was actually Australian. Um, but it, <laughs> that this fact is widely held, widely held to be the first um, action of the Second World, Second World War um, and it certainly so, was the first Allied actual shot because it was fired in anger. So you're, what you're saying is that the Australians shot at themselves? Yes. <laughs> but this, so, so, but, but it was actually fired in anger. So officially yeah. counts, the historians do officially count this as the first action. Uh, and no one was actually hurt in, in this uh... In this encounter, no, it was they were the the it was deliberately the shot fired across the ship's bow as a warning, uh, to to identify themselves, and of course they then, um, as you would do if you're a captain of a ship being attacked, you, you identified themselves as being Australian, and the action uh, swiftly came to a conclusion. But the fact actually takes a a um, an interesting twist in that. This battery was also, unbelievably being over in Australia, was also the first uh, place to fire a shot in the First World War too. The sh that shot in the First World War um, was fired on the 5th of August, 1914. Um, and it was indeed, this time it was an enemy ship, albeit it was a small, I believe it was a small German cruiser. Um, the cruiser had been allowed to leave the harbour because it, it left the dock uh, just before the start of the First World War, before the war was, um, before Britain entered into the war, um, and uh, whilst they were leaving the harbour, uh, the um, war started, and um, the Australians very diligently fired a shot at the Germans, um, and the German ship was forced to come back into the into the harbour, I believe, into Melbourne, um, where the the whole crew were arrested and held, and detained for the rest of the war. So, right. interesting coincidence. In fact, um, unfortunately, the, the shot hit the the start, which the, the first Allied shot of the Second World War, unfortunately, was uh, at an Australian. <laughs> well, there you have it: Australians shooting at Australians. Absolutely remarkable. I didn't know that. No, cracking stuff. All right. Well, um, I've got uh, a story um, about. Uh, a certain Mr. Hitler, um, but it's it's probably not it's not the mis, it's not going to be the, the Mr. Hitler you're thinking of. Um, most people in the world, I think, have probably heard of Adolf Hitler, but I'm going to tell you a brief story about another Hitler you've probably never heard of, uh, William Patrick Stuart Hitler, uh, who was Hitler's nephew, um, and it's uh, it's a short but amazing and bizarre story. So. 
as you've uh, probably gathered by his um, Eng- very English-sounding name, uh, William Hitler was a Brit. So he was born in 1911 in Liverpool. So he was a Scouser. Uh, he was the son of um, Adolf Hitler's half-brother. So uh, actually, I guess that makes him a half-nephew, um, I suppose. Uh, but he was brought up in Britain. Um, and interestingly, the house that he and his family uh, grew, up, grew up in was actually destroyed by the Germans in 1941 during the Liverpool Blitz. But his, um, so our uh, William, his, his, uh, his early years were fairly uh, innocuous. Um, he does visit Germany for the first time in 1929. This was the time of the Weimar Republic. Um, but in 1933, it all changes when Uncle Adolf becomes German Chancellor. Um, so I guess William is about 22 at the time. Um, he returns to Germany basically in an attempt to kind of, you know, to try and benefit from his uncle's fame and, 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 um, and power and influence. Um, and, you know, Hitler does pull a few strings for him. Um, you know, he enjoys the, the, the fruits of nepotism for a little while. And, and Hitler finds him initially a job at, at, the, at the Reichsbank in Berlin, um, a job that, he, you know, he has for, for a couple of years and then uh, decides he doesn't like that. And, and then Hitler gets him another job at a car um, factory and later as a car salesman. Um, but, he, you know, William becomes um, a bit dissatisfied. You know, he's, he's not he's not he's not too happy with with uh, his station. Um, you know, he thinks, you know, his uncle is German chancellor, he thinks he's entitled to more. So he pushes his luck uh, a little bit um, and he then goes on to do something um, fairly unwise. He tries to blackmail Adolf Hitler. Um, he writes to Hitler, um, threatening to tell the press that Hitler's alleged uh, paternal grandfather was actually Jewish. Um, this is a bit of a, a, a whole a whole other controversy, and, and I don't think it was ever conclusively proved either way. But uh, yeah, so he starts, you know, sending Hitler these threatening letters. Um, and in 1938, Adolf responds he asks William to relinquish his British British citizenship and says if you become one of my subjects um, I will give you a high-ranking job in the government. By this time uh, eve of the Second World War Hitler's Hitler's character is becoming apparent you know his true character William probably realised that he realises he's got in a bit too deep realises who he's dealing with and that he's probably made a big mistake um, and he's actually in a great deal of danger so uh, expecting a trap, um, he flees Nazi Germany um, and comes back to London, where he publishes an article um, with a brilliant title, Why I Hate My Uncle, and it, which actually does um, very well. And he, and he gets a lot of public attention off the, off the back of this. And this leads to him, to William, uh, getting um, an invite to the United States to give a lecture tour you know, about his relationship with uh, with Adolf Hitler, um, which he does. Um, but while he's there, the Second World War breaks out. Um, you know, the, the, Battle of the Battle of the Atlantic kicks off and suddenly it's it's really fairly dangerous to, to travel um, between the US and, and, uh, and Britain. So he's kind of stuck. 
he's stuck where he is and he he then decides to become uh to apply for US citizenship and that's granted and long story short you know he eventually joins the US navy fights on behalf of the allies um is wounded in action receives a purple heart i couldn't find out where exactly he served the details there were a bit sketchy um but can you imagine having a name like that and being in the allied armies and you know people knowing that you're hitler's nephew and what that must have been like was he so his name was actually hitler is, is he was born a hitler it's not until after the war that he eventually changes his surname to stuart houston um i'm not sure that where that comes from exactly but um yeah you know he he keeps the hitler the hitler name throughout the year throughout throughout the war um yeah. and do we know what happened do we, we know what happened ultimately to mr hitler i think he just fades into obscurity at the end um but uh yeah meet the hitlers everybody very uh, very interesting and not he does basically you know he renounces um all links to, to to Nazi Germany by this stage, but okay, sir, back to you. Yeah, so I a completely different uh, part of the war. I'm really interested, and I always have been, in some of the countries, particularly in Europe, who managed to stay neutral during throughout, throughout most of them throughout Second World War. So clearly, you've got Switzerland, which my next facts on. But you also have uh, places like. Spain, for more obvious reasons, remain neutral, and Portugal, and uh, Sweden as well. Um, but it, for me, if we just focus on uh, Switzerland, it's a, it, it's more around how did how did a country in right in the middle, if you like, sandwiched between lots of warring countries, remain neutral all the way through the war? I don't know if you know much about the Swiss neutrality. A little bit, not much. Yeah, so, so the the fact I've got maybe in future podcasts we can talk a little bit more around how they why they were neutral and and how they stayed neutral through the war. My my fact was more um, uh, something I stumbled across, which I hadn't actually been aware of, um, that actually there was action in Switzerland, or more precisely above Switzerland in the skies uh, through the Second World War. Um, so. At the start of the war, whilst they um, remained neutral, the Swiss were very clear that they didn't want either Allied or Axis um, aircraft passing through their airspace, um, which is, given the location of the country, was quite difficult with all the attacks going on into France and then later bombing bombing runs from the Allies going towards Germany. Quite often, um, they would they would have to pass or naturally would pass through Swiss airspace. So whilst at the start of the war, um, during the Battle of France, the Swiss had said no one was no planes were to fly through their airspace, um, there were a couple of notable incursions. So the Swiss actually, with their air force, which was which was predominantly um, manned by Messerschmitt planes, the Swiss actually shot down during the Battle of France eleven um, German uh, fighter planes, German Messerschmitts, I think they were. Aware. Well, they, this was the Swiss anti-aircraft? No, Swiss Air Force, uh, yeah. uh, manned Swiss by Messerschmitt planes, actually shot oh. down, uh, saw, saw German fighters were incurring uh, their airspace and they sent their own Air Force up to shoot them down, which I thought was uh, really interesting. Indeed, on one occasion, 
um, when a German plane had been downed at Gowering, obviously the um, head of the Luftwaffe, Gowering sent deliberately sent, I think it was 23 planes, German planes, to deliberately incur the uh, Swiss airspace as a show of strength. And those planes were then met by more Swiss um, aircraft who, who fended them off. So I find this interesting. You hear a country being neutral and you just assume there's no, uh, never any, any contact and they're almost ignorant of the war. But that definitely wasn't the case. And the second part of this, yeah. later in the war, by which time, around about 1941, the Swiss had given up on um, the concept that uh, either Allied or Axis planes couldn't fly through their airspace. Later in the war, they, they gave up on that. And Allied planes would, would often fly over Switzerland. Um, and there are a few examples where Allied bombing raids actually bombed Switzerland by accident. Uh, and mm. the biggest biggest example of this was a place called Schau, Schaufhausen, if I've uh, pronounced that in German. I think it's German Swiss correctly. Um, uh, Allied bombers made a mistake and were supposed to be dropping their payloads over Mannerheim, which is about 250 kilometers north of Switzerland, uh, but had, had got themselves yes. lost, as, as quite often happened. Um, and they dropped their bombs over this place, this town called Schaufhausen, and actually killed um, 40 Swiss uh, citizens in the raid. Um, re there were other examples where this happened. Um, and actually, in, in actual fact, the U.S. Uh, to date has paid historians believe between five and fifteen million U.S. dollars actually compensation for these these errors that were made during the Second World War. Yeah, I suppose both sides could, you know, legitimately claim um, uh, accidents. You know, accidents are going to happen. The fog of war. You know, we we flew into your airspace by uh, unintentionally. Um, no, and, and as you know, it, it probably suited both the Allies and the Axis as well to have you know Switzerland as a neutral country. I think it was it was probably in both their interests, wasn't it? Yes, certainly um, towards cer certainly. I think as the uh, if you like pendulum swang in the war between the two sides. Um, it would, yeah. for for Germany uh, probably would have Switzerland acted as a buffer. I think it's fair to say on its southern edge. Um, yeah. So yeah, it, it did suit them. But there were lots of political, as with all the neutral powers, there's lots of po political pressure exerted on um, neutral countries like Switzerland to to yeah. to help out or not help out, um, depending on what um, which side of uh, the ally or axis fence you were on. Okay. Yeah, very interesting. I I, I certainly didn't know that um, Switzerland had a had an active air force during. No, that. absolutely. That was news to me. Great. So we've done Australia. We've done Switzerland. I am going to um, switch the focus a little bit to um, move across to uh, take a look at the Eastern Front. And just talk a little bit about um, the Battle of Stalingrad um, and the events on the Eastern Front. Um, there's loads of grisly statistics uh, that I could quote when it comes to the Eastern Front um, in the Second World War. 
But when I was kind of researching this this podcast, there was one in particular that I, that I came across um, that really jumped out at me, um, which I'd like to share with you. Uh, I think it's pretty interesting. So of um, the males born in the Soviet Union in the year 1923, okay, 1923, only 20% of all the males born in the Soviet Union that year survived the war. Okay, so 80% were either killed in fighting or died from wounds or from disease or starvation or in the camps. Um, Four out of every five uh, male born in, in the class of 1923. Um, you know, and, and these were the, you know, the, the, these were the kids who do 18, 19, 20 um, would have been just old enough to, to have been enlisted um, in the Red Army. Um, and, and, and they were, you know, more often than not, they were sent into the fray with very little, if any, training or, 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 um, or equipment. You know, there's all these stories that you hear from Stalingrad about, you know, hundreds of men being sent into that, into action and only a percentage of them, a small proportion of them were actually armed with rifles. You know, the rest were kind of just expected to fend for themselves and, you know, pick up weapons where they could, Um, you know, and it's kind of staggering really, if you think of, you know, that entire, uh, entire generation that, that was that was really wiped out almost um, that class of 1923. Yeah, it's um, horrific. And the, the Battle of Stalingrad, you know, obviously stands out above all. Um, we're talking about this campaign. You know, it's it's probably the most attritional battle in in recent history in terms of numbers, um, possibly in all of history. Uh, you know. Uh, there were over 1 million casualties at Stalingrad on the Soviet side alone. Um, more, more, more Russian deaths than, than um, the U S and, and Britain sustained together in, in the whole of the second world war in, in this one battle, um, you know, and on the German side after the, after the collapse, you know, the Germans lost close to three quarters of a million men uh, again, either in, in, uh, in battle or, or, um, uh, or in the, the Soviet prison prisoner war camps um, afterwards, and very, very, very few ever ever got back to Germany. I find when you see the um, the death toll across the Allies by country, it's, you can appreciate how a different perspective. Maybe we should talk about this in the future. That the the Russian and Soviets would have had of the Second World War, maybe from the other parts of the Allies, just the sheer. Yeah, you, you can. It almost feels like you can see the their perception that they took the brunt of the Second World War, and when you hear twenty four million people yeah. died, that's a huge, huge yeah. percentage wise would have been a huge um, proportion of the country. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I think you're right. You know, it's you know, it's, it is important to highlight this stuff because it's there. There is a tendency, I think, to you know, to look back at. The Second World War and other events in recent history, like through, through your 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 own country's perspective, or at least you know in the West through a Western perspective of the war. So, you know, in, in Britain, we tend to, you know if you, someone mentions the Second World War, you tend to think of things like the Battle of Britain, Dunkirk, D Day, Arnhem, El Alamein. You know, 
Americans will have their own um, perspective. Uh, I've got the figures. Yeah, yeah, I can share them with you. So, um, yeah, so the Soviet Union suffered 24 million war dead in the Second World War, um, both civilian and, mil- and military. Um, China had 20 million war dead. Um, Germany between six and a half, somewhere between six and a half and eight and a half million. Japan between two, two and a half and three million. Um, the UK lost 450,000. The US lost 420,000. And it's just when you hear those figures, you can... When these stories were just, just one of, of many, um, you know, and, and as those numbers illustrate, you know, in some ways, you know, they, they were kind of dwarfed by, by, what, by what happened in, um, you know, on, in, in Russia and the Eastern Front and in China yeah, as well. Absolutely. The Chinese numbers are interesting. Yeah. I'm not really aware of that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think the perception yeah. by country is very different. And maybe something we can we should talk yeah. about. Yeah. So if you were unlucky enough to be born in the Soviet Union in 1923, your chances of surviving the Second World War were very slim. Okay, Mr. Paino, uh, back to you to give us another interesting fact. Yeah. So I'm going to talk uh, about now one of the more grisly parts of the Second World War. So you mentioned at the start that there's up. There was absolutely no glory in ultimately in the Second World War. It's an awful part of, well, it's very interesting, an awful, um, if you like, a slice of humanity. So the story is around a, a village in the Limousin uh, region of France uh, called Uradur-sur-Glen. Um, only a small village, as I say, it's in the middle of um, a very rural farming part of France. If you look to the map, imagine almost um, spot bang in the middle of the of the country. Um, to tell around uh, the date, was the tenth of June, nineteen forty-four, where um, the entire population of the village, uh, six hundred and forty-two people, were uh, massacred by the Second SS Panzer Division, which is a Waffen SS um, division. Um, What's really interesting, it's very sad, but interesting about this is the in France, this is held as a memorial. The village has been left untouched since the day of the massacre. Indeed, if you go there now, cars still stand in exactly the position they were when uh, the massacre took place. You can uh, visit built, it, yeah, yeah. Yeah, buildings, the buildings are there, it's all derelict, but it, the village is untouched completely from that day. Um, say if there's a, a museum just on the outside, of the of the village um, which provides some information around uh, around what happened and the the events of that day so what happened is the french very sad tale the french um what they call the milice which were the collab in the south of france in vichy france with the police who collaborated with the german authorities uh this these uh, milice uh, told the nearby german authorities that a Waffen SS officer, German officer, had been uh, taken prisoner in a nearby village in this Limousin region uh, by the local resistance, French resistance. When the when the Germans um, uh, heard this, they sealed off the the village, the neighbouring village, Oradour-sur-Glen, um, and asked everybody. Um, all the population to meet in the centre of the village, in the uh, in the village square, um, and present their ID cards for IDs to be checked. 
So the villagers all gathered there with their ID cards. This was an unusual at that time in France. Um, the women, once they were in the square and all documents had been checked, the women and children were asked to go to a nearby church. And men were, the, the village men were um, asked to go to several barns and sheds, which they didn't know, but the Germans had uh, filled with hidden machine guns, people manning machine guns hiding in these barns and sheds. According to eyewitness accounts, I'll come back to that in a minute, um, what happened then, uh, the men, the men as they entered these barns and sheds were basically machine gunned, but were deliberately machine gunned below the, below the knees. To t so they weren't killed, but they were effectively disabled. Um, they were then, all the men in the village were then um, still alive, covered in fuel. And, and within the barns, they were, everything was set, set on fire and burnt down. So you can imagine the horror and, and the scene. Um, as that was happening. So they deliberately kept them alive to increase their suffering? Yes, completely. To, if you like, I guess, to teach them a lesson. Um, then the, the authorities, the Germans, uh, um, then went to the church, where, which was full of women and children. Um, they placed around the edge of the church, they placed in incendiary devices, so devices which would not just bombs, but would start fires everywhere. And they set fire to the church. And when the women and children were trying to escape out of windows, doors, trying to run from the inferno inside the church, which had, had been started by these incendiary devices, then they were they were very sadly all machine gunned down. And I think you'll agree, it's a terrible story and a very one of the darker episodes of the war. It's just horrific, isn't it? The, the Second World War, some of these stories, you know, this is one of the most, more famous incidents, probably, but there, there were so many, so many horrific incidents of this kind. No, absolutely. It's, it's amazing. And, um, and just just in, in terms of the numbers and a couple sort of uh, last points on it. So 642 people died there. Um, 180 of those were men. There was 247 women died. And 205 children died in it. It's very sad. the the whole The whole oh, episode, very sad episode, only really came to full its full horrific light um, because five men and one woman woman actually managed to escape. The woman's most famous story: she managed to crawl out of a window. She was shot, as presumed dead, uh, by the Germans, but managed to crawl and hide in a in, amongst pea. Uh, plants in someone's garden until it was dark and then uh, still able just about to walk managed to uh, escape out of the village and uh, raise the alarm and then mm -hmm. and then finally it, it is also um, well it was documented by a 20 year old US B-17 navigator who'd been shot down who actually witnessed from a distance outside the village whilst he was in hiding witnessed what, what had happened in the massacre um, and he was during after the massacre was um, assisted out out of by the resistance resistance out of France and back to the UK, and he wrote a report and sent it to America, um, and actually that report was used as a basis for prosecution of I think it was twenty one of the after the war twenty one of the surviving sixty five German soldiers who were there and, and um, partook in 
the massacre, uh, they were prosecuted um, after the war. So what sort of sentences did they receive? Well, sentences are actually quite controversial. Um, I, th- I think some of them ranged through to 15 to 20 years. Um, again, I don't know exact numbers, but obviously in the years that followed the Second World War, um, politics and, and changing friendships uh, and relationships between countries actually changed some of the dynamics. And um, a lot of the, the Germans who'd been convicted and prosecuted actually released early, which, of course, is quite controversial in this region of France, where with the, the village still still standing there as a memorial, uh, memories are still very fresh, very much fresh and, and real. Yeah. The date is interesting, 10th of June, 1944. So, that, so as you say, this, this incident took place in central France. Um, the Allied armies have invaded Normandy four days earlier on the 6th of June, and, and the Battle of Normandy is in full swing by this stage. But this takes place, you know, in quite a different location. Is this the, is this about, is this the SS sort of sending out a warning to the population of France? You know, this is what's going to happen to you if you, if you um, collaborate with the Allies? I think... Was that part of the thinking at all, or...? or... It's, it's hard to know. The commander who, um, who was in charge of the garrison which carried out the massacre was killed in Normandy just a few weeks after after this the the actual massacre took place so it's very there's no obviously you would no, not get an official you would never get an official historical view uh, directly from him but I, I think you can read into the situation that the um, occup, occupying forces in France were twitchy nervous and these sort of reprisals the chance and likelihood of them happening was probably yeah. very much heightened because of the invasion. Yeah, yeah absolutely, absolutely. Okay, uh, well, I um, thank you. Thanks, uh, Mr. Payne, for that one. Um, I'm going to continue on a, a kind of a similar similar vein, um, uh, covering some, some, some similar territory, because I want to tell a story about um, an individual called Joachim Piper, um, Joachim Piper was an SS commander, um, so he wasn't he wasn't involved in the incident um, that you've you've just uh, uh, told us about. Um, but this guy deserves a bit of a, a bit of a backstory. So he is Joachim Piper is your quintessential Nazi. You know he is a real bastard. He's a really, really nasty piece of work. Um, he's associated with all the worst elements of, you know, of Nazi Germany. He was, he was the personal assistant to, to Heinrich Himmler, who's the head of the SS, um, before getting his, you know, b- b- early in the war, um, before getting his sort of first battlefield uh, command. Um, he also really looks the part, you know, he's young, he's dashing, he's good looking, he's got that square jaw and kind of Aryan looks, you know, he's, he's basically a poster boy for sort of Nazi ideology. Um, and so then he, you know, he goes on to command um, uh, an SS unit, 
which is responsible for all sorts of uh, war crimes and atrocities on the Eastern Front um, and also in Italy, uh, where his his men are responsible for the Boves massacre um, of 23 civilians uh, in Italy. Um, they're active in the fighting in, in, in Normandy. Um, but he's probably most well known, especially in, in the West today, as being the commander responsible for the Malmody massacre um, in the Ardennes, where uh, 84 American um, soldiers were basically taken out in, captured by the by the advancing Germans and uh, were then taken out into a field and, and machine gunned. Um, and I've, I've, I've visited that site and I think you have as well. Yeah, it's on a crossroads, um, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Malmody. Um, despite all of this, uh, you know, jo- Joachim Piper is also considered to be a, a brilliant soldier. You know, he's very courageous. He's bold. He's fearless. Um, and for that reason, he's basically kind of um, selected to command the, the, the largest battle group, the spearhead of the, of the 6th Panzer army during the um during the ardennes offensive in december 1944 which of course is better known as the battle of the bulge um need to say a, a, probably a, a little bit about the, the battle of the bulge to put this in, into some context so this is often described as hitler's last gamble you know it was the last throw of the dice um by this stage of the war, you know, the, the, the Germans are fighting this incredible war of attrition on the Eastern Front. You know, they're being thrown back all over the, across the map, um, defeat after defeat. This was the, the, the offensive in the Ardennes was the last German uh, offensive action of the war, the last um, major counterattack. And it, and it was a gamble. You know, it was, it was Hitler rolling the dice. Um, the intention was to split the Allied armies um, in two um, uh, and, and try and capture the port of Antwerp, which was considered sort of essential to the, 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 the supplying the Allied armies. Um, so basically what they're trying to do is they're trying to, they're trying to you know, force, let's call it an honourable draw um, rather than a defeat, you know, rather than a defeat um, and at least bring the Western allies to the kind of negotiating table so they can concentrate on on, um, on fighting the Russians in the east. Um, however, it's never going to work. It's hugely speculative. Um, uh, Antwerp is miles away. They were never in a month of Sundays going to reach Antwerp with the best will in the world. You know, this is this is Hitler's brainchild. Um, this is Hitler operating you know, without the um, consent or knowledge of of many of his leading generals. Um, But he needs a a commander with, you know, the sufficient daring and dash to to kind of to to, to pull off this attempt. And so Joachim Piper is selected as as that man. Um, So he he spearheads this attack, this surprise attack in the Ardennes. um, And I've fact visited the route um with big dave uh two years ago it was um and you can actually you can actually track the route that the the the, the, you know this german panzer army took um and it's a really interesting place to visit actually because you've got you you know there's 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 all sorts of memorials along the route from you know 
um, wrecked American tanks and and pan- German Panzer tanks um, all along this all along this line of advance. Um, but they, you know, so so it's a complete surprise. You know, they achieve the the element of surprise, um, and and achieve some really impressive results to begin with. But after those initial gains, you know, the Allies are able to consolidate um, and and uh, throw more reserves into the fray. And sure enough, you know, the German attack breaks down. Um, and uh, they start losing a lot of men, and ultimately, but ultimately, they get stopped because they they simply run out of fuel. You know, that's that at this stage in the war, fuel is one of the, the biggest logistical challenges facing facing um, the German armies. Um, and the Panzers just run out of gas at the end, and what's left of of the the sixth Pan- SS Panzer Army ends up walking back to Germany. And I think uh, about seven hundred out of the three thousand. German troops um, involved in the attack actually make it back to Germany, including Joachim Piper. Um, so he survives the war. Um, 1946, he's brought to trial for um, some of his war crimes and, and those committed by um, the men under his command. Uh he is prosecuted and um, is initially receives the death sentence. But as you were saying, uh, Paino, before, you know, some of the sentences at uh, these war crimes prosecutions were a bit strange. If you think about it in, in looking back, because um, the death sentence was then commuted to a life sentence. And, you know, as often happens with, so-called life sentences he ended up spending about 10 to 12 years in prison but the story doesn't end there so piper serves serves his time in prison um he re-enters society you know he gets a senior job um in the automobile automobile industry he's he's very publicly visible um he's very involved in uh things like uh, reunions of, of ss soldiers and he's very active in trying to publicly rehabilitate the 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 image of the of the ss and and the german wehrmacht um as you know uh we weren't as bad as we were portrayed to be you know we were just following orders all of this stuff that has been um pretty much uh, completely um proven to be a load of rubbish um essentially but he was at the forefront of those efforts um as you can imagine, you know, a proven war criminal, there's a lot of people who are pretty unhappy about him, you know, uh, leading such a public life um, in, in the light of um, his war record. And they start to make his life a bit difficult um, to the extent where he ends up leaving Germany and he moves to France, to um, uh, eastern France. It was a um, little rural community. Um, haven't got the name in front of me right now but um you know this was again it was part of what was vichy france and uh you know the scars of the second world war probably still quite fresh um but initially he manages to he manages to live a quiet a quiet life you know in in hiding almost in in the french countryside um until he's outed quite publicly by He's identified by former members of the French resistance. 
um, and they call him out and, and they publish uh, details of who he is and where he's living. And, and suddenly he's again facing all this, all this attention. Um, and he starts to get death threats and, you know, threatening letters. And he, you know, this culminates in, in him pretty much being holed up in his, in his farmhouse, um, you know, kind of, uh, almost under siege, if you will. Um, until, uh, he's murdered. He comes to a grisly end on the 14th of July, 1976. So 30 years after the end of the war, he is murdered by, uh, supposedly anyway members of the of the ex-french resistance but the details about his death are a little bit murky and no one's ever really been prosecuted um for this event so his his farmhouse um is burnt to the ground uh and they find his body inside uh clutching a rifle and a pistol and several several spent cartridges and they find all uh, loads of spent cartridges in his garden as well and you know it seems like it was sort of the, the like the shootout of the okay corral um you know he's he dies he doesn't go out without a fight he dies defending himself defending his his home um against uh is believed to be ex ex french resistance members so um yeah pretty pretty interesting story uh, all in all, and worth worth uh, worth checking out further details there about Yoke and Piper. Yeah, it's really it's incredible and really quite interesting um, on a couple of levels. One, nineteen seventy six. You know that seems a long time after the war. Those deep rooted feelings, yes. um, those old old adversaries, uh, French resistance, um, German versus the Germans so quite interesting how how that played out um also do we know why he ended up moving to France I uh, just that his life in Germany was becoming difficult you know there was um there were a lot of people that were unhappy about his public persona um given his past and his war record um you know he was he was he was often asked to, to do interviews and you know, stopped in public and uh, decided, I suppose, at the end of the day, you know, I, I don't want to deal with the hassle of it anymore. So I'm going to go and try and try and eke out a quiet life in the French countryside instead. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Right. OK. Um, that's the Oaken Piper. Back to you, Mr. Payne. Yeah. So For our panel yeah, I was going to say, so back to the day. we're kind of closing in now on the, I think, the end of our, our facts. Hopefully everybody's been enjoying it. We we thought we'd finished, uh, finish with a couple of facts around the surrender, which seems quite apt. We started with the the podcast with the first shot, allied shot of the uh, war, so we'll finish with um, uh, the surrender side. So uh, my fact was uh, the last German to actually surrender in the war, which I find um, uh, quite int- quite interesting. So... If we go to the to VE Day, it's always to me quite surprising that there were still pockets of, if you like, German resistance or German fighters, either besieged or or just fighters which were holding out and who hadn't surrendered. So on VE Day, for example, there were still pockets in Western France that the Allies, following D Day, uh, the liberation of France, had sort of bypassed 
and, and those pockets still needed mopping up. Um, same was, I guess, true across the whole of Europe. But when you, when I looked into actually trying to understand where, so where was the last pocket of German resistance that was holding out? It's it's amazing to find find out that it was actually 119 days after VE Day, the last German soldiers, active soldiers in the war, actually put their their, uh, if you like, guns down. Um, the, it was actually the 4th of September when this happened, um, which it, it itself was two days after VE, VJ Day, so Japan actually surrendering and leaving the war, when a, a small group of German soldiers who'd been holed up um, in a hoopa, who'd been asked to go to an island, an incredibly remote island, um, north of uh, Norway in the Bering Sea called Bear Island, They'd been asked there by the German uh, German um, war machine to to go and start set up a weather station. And they'd actually at the end of the war they'd lost contact with the German army uh, around about May time, and so didn't know the war had come to an end until some, uh, I think it was um, a, a band of Norwegian seal hunters actually came across them um, in September, early September, nineteen forty five. And and explain to them more had come to an end, um, and so they had they put the guns down and and um, and effectively surrendered from their weather station. But I found that fascinating. There there were pockets of of uh, German activity still going on that that uh, far after the after the VE day. Uh, you're right. Yeah, um, very fascinating. Um, so that was 119 days after yeah. VE day. Yeah, 19 days. Um, interesting, mate, but I can go one better. Um, quite, a, quite a lot better as it, as it happens. Um, so I am going to finish um, by talking about the last or one of the last Japanese soldiers to, to surrender at the end of the war. Um, we haven't talked very much in this podcast about the Far East. Um, so I'm going to touch on that now and tell you the story of um, Hiro... Unada, who was an Imperial Japanese Army Army intelligence officer who fought in the Second World War and didn't surrender in 1945, disappeared into the mountains of the Philippines until 30 years later when his former commander, they had to dig his former commander out of the out of the woodwork to, to travel from Japan to personally order him to down arms and, and to relieve him from duty. And that was in 1974, 30 years later. Um, to really understand this story about Hiro Inada, I think you've got to, you've got to understand a little bit about the psyche of the Japanese soldier of World War II. So the Japanese, Japanese Imperial Army are pretty much unlike any other army of of modern times you know we're talking about absolute fanaticism um and, and this principle of never surrendering of, of preferring death to surrender um you know it's a principle of absolute loyalty to the emperor and um the question of honor you know preferring death to surrender or defeat um, and you, you know you can point at examples of fanaticism from from other theatres, you know, on the Eastern Front, or you know we talked about the SS, um, 
that those 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 examples are more isolated and and not you know we're talking at a, on a general scale that you know the, the the psyche of the Japanese army in World War Two was unlike anything else. Um, and interesting, I remember reading a a memoir about of uh, a, a British officer who served in both the European and uh, European theatre and in the Far East. Which is quite unusual, right? You know that not a lot of guys did that. No. Um, and and you know, so he he witnessed this from both sides of the fence, and and he he couldn't believe the the punishment. He I remember him saying the punishment that the Japanese were able to withstand and you know he, he he said the germans never could have withstood it um you know and and you've got all these incidents of entire japanese divisions basically being wiped out to the man um because of this unwillingness to surrender or, or accept defeat um i want to just, just quickly going to quote a couple more figures uh, statistics these are the last stats of the day um the Battle of Tower, so out of a out of a force of four thousand seven hundred odd um, Japanese, four thousand six hundred ninety were killed, and only seventeen were captured alive. Battle of Iwo Jima, out of an estimated force of twenty between twenty and twenty one thousand, eighteen thousand were killed, two hundred and sixteen were taken prisoner, and the rest are listed as missing. Battle of Saipan, out of a force of 32,000 Japanese, 24,000 are killed in battle, and a further 5,000 commit suicide. They prefer to commit suicide rather than um, surrender to the Allies. Incredible when you hear those stats, isn't it? It's amazing. It's just amazing. Um, so, you, you know, the, the kind of the level of ferocity of fighting in, in some of those specific battles was, was um, you know, it was extreme because of this unwillingness to surrender so that's you know that's the you have to kind of think about that in context to understand the story about uh hero renada um a bit more about him so he was a second lieutenant so he wasn't even a senior officer he was the lowest rank of, of officer essentially um december 1944 he's posted to lubang island in the philippines he's ordered to do all he can do all he can to harass the enemy you know um the Japanese, by this stage of the war, you know they've, they've got their backs against the wall. They're they're facing um, defeat after defeat. He's ordered to, to do what he can, um, and he's also stated in his orders that under no circumstances was he to surrender. And and so, um, Second Lieutenant Onada takes this literally. Um, the U.S. and the Philippine troops land in February of forty-five and take the island. Um, the entire his entire garrison are wiped out, and all but uh, Onada and three other soldiers are killed or captured. And they uh, basically take to the hills. They take to the mountains and and try and survive and, and sort of fight their own independent mini guerrilla war. It's not till October forty five that um, these guys find a leaflet which says that the war is over, um, basically in, in instructing them to come down from the hills and to hand themselves in. Um, but they they refuse to believe it. They think it's Allied propaganda, and they stay in hiding. Uh, and you know, occasionally harass local um, police forces, and you know, carry out these kind of guerrilla attacks um, over the coming years. Um, in 1950, one of the group gives up and walks away and hands himself in. 
1952, um, they drop because uh, they know roughly where these guys are on the map, and they they uh, drop letters and family pictures from an aircraft um, from you know surviving family members back home, urging them to surrender to hand themselves in. Um, but they 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 think it's all a trick. They think it's uh, you know a trick uh, again, Allied propaganda. Um, in 1954, one of the group is killed by a, a shot fired by a, a search party who, who've been sent to look for them. So for a long period of time, there's only two of them left. Um, you know, these two guys are still fighting the Second World War, which is by this point finished years, several years ago. They're still fighting it by themselves. Um, <laughs> uh, in, in 1972, the other one is killed. Um, he's he's uh, they're, they're sort of I think they're burning rice collected by the farmers uh, and they're, and they're shot by um by the well, this guy shot one of them shot by police so Onada's now on, on his own he's alone um, and this is where it gets a bit weird so in 1974 he meets a Japanese backpacker you know this kind of young hippie who basically tracks him down and seeks seeks him out and tracks him down. Um, tries to convince him to come home, you know, but he befriends this guy, but he, he still refuses to give up his arms. Um, but this, this, this guy goes back to Japan with photos and, and, and evidence um, of the, of, you know, of, of his encounter. Um, and the Japanese government, uh, as I said at the beginning, they managed to track down his former commander, um, a major Tanaguchi, who then travels to Lugan Island in the Philippines and formally orders Onada to surrender. Um, and he finally hands over his sword 30 years after the it's war an, ends. An incredible story. Um, it's just amazing. It's just amazing. Um, however, he's not the last one. I thought he was um, when I was researching this, but um, and technically, well, depending on how you look at this, there was another soldier, a private, um, called Tiro Nakamura, um, who was discovered in hiding in Indonesia even longer. He held out until December 1974, beat, beat Onada by about six months. But um, Nakamura was timid Taiwanese. He wasn't Japanese. He, he just, um, you know, he was... Uh, allied himself with the with the japanese um so his his re, his repatriation actually got far less attention than, than that of onada um and onada actually goes back to japan lives a normal life bemoans what's happened to the country and the kind of moral weakness and lives until about 2011 i think last last bastion of the i want to hear more in future army. podcasts about about this japanese man um just as mentality to sit there yeah. for 30 years fighting on uh, he must have been he must have been yeah, 50 60 amazing. 70 by the time he he quit or by the time he took his orders and and went back to japan that's his life indeed yeah 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 like you say we'll have to cover this in a bit more detail um but look we, you know we've been we've been whittling on now for quite a while so um i think we need to draw this to a close so thanks very much mr payne absolute pleasure to talk to you Really interesting discussion. We are going to do some more of these. Uh, I'm going to plan a few more of these in the new year. So thanks very much. Thanks for Thank listening. you very much.